Good morning. We're in Mark chapter 2, if you want to go ahead and start turning that way. So, Father, we are so thankful to be in your house this morning. Come on, I'm thankful for the cross today. We're thankful for your unrelenting love that you pour out on your children. We bless you. We bless you, Lord. Speak to us through your word. May we leave here better disciples of Jesus. It's in your holy name we pray. And all God's people said amen. Amen. I was reading a story this week. Um, It's often said that George Whitfield is the greatest preacher of the 18th century. And there's not many that argue that. But when you would ask, some would say, if you asked George Whitfield who his favorite preacher was or who was the best preacher in the 18th century, George Whitfield would have said a man named Daniel Rowland. Now, Daniel Rowland was much less popular than Whitfield. His English was really poor. And Whitfield traveled around the world and preached. And Daniel Rowland pretty much pastored in one town for the entirety of his life. He was born to a, uh, his father was a preacher and his older brother went into the ministry. And so he served his older brother for a season southern wales and um he decides to go into the ministry he was actually really athletic um but as he begins to pastor there are churches in town that are bigger and better and so he decides one day that he'll go to a church in town and try to listen to another preacher preach to learn what he's doing better than him well the church that he goes to a man is really uh preaching judgment just letting it rip man the realities of hell the lake of fire and people were actually coming and kind of in fear and trembling giving their hearts to the Lord. And and so Daniel Rowland decided that he too would be what they called a thundering preacher. So for a season of Daniel Rowland's life, he's referred to as the thundering preacher. Sometimes he's called the angry clergyman, the angry clergyman. Well, his church did grow and he began to see some success. Well, after some time, there was another preacher coming through town. His name, um, his name was Griffith Jones and Griffith Jones had kind of earned a name for himself and he was getting ready to come to the town where Daniel Roland ministered and uh, Roland decided he would go and just um, kind of observe. Now some speculate that in this time period when there was a really full church service, they would pull all the pews out of the building and everyone would stand because you could pack more people in when, when everyone was standing. And so as Griffith Jones is preaching, Daniel Roland's standing up front and uh, it said that his biographers say he was standing kind of proudly with kind of a judgmental spirit, kind of analyzing, watching what was happening as Griffith Jones is preaching. He finally stops, points him out, kind of calls out his arrogance and begins to pray that he would be saved. And so, um, well, Daniel Rowland says that he actually was saved that day, that he really didn't understand the gospel of grace at all that he only uh, learned of this kind of pious religious thing that he propagated. And uh, he stood there very judgmental until Dan- uh, until Griffith Jones started to pray. And, and after that day, Daniel Rowland became known as no longer the angry clergyman, but they began to call him the preacher of consolation or of comfort. And and fascinating facts, I, I read this from several sources, but the, the town that, that Daniel Rowland ministered in in southern Wales most historians think the population was under 500, so a really small town. Um, but what we know from history is that the first service on the weekend that Daniel Rowland held would begin on Saturday afternoon. And by Saturday afternoon, the town um, population would swell to about 2,000, 3,000. George Whitfield says the day that he, be, when he would go to hear um, Rowland preach, that sometimes there would be 10,000 people 
packed around to hear him. There's records saying that when he, uh, on the communion Sunday, kind of a special Sunday, they would have as many as 15,000 people. Now, it's really funny because the town has less than 500 people living in it. And so as the weekend began, people from hundreds of miles started to, on Friday evening, they started to walk and flocked uh, flocked towards the town where his ministry was held. Just a profound ministry. He led what's called the Calvinistic Methodist movement um, and, and was used mightily of God. Now, his entire ministry, to some extent, was influenced by and dependent upon Griffith Jones, who taught him what the gospel really meant. And he transitioned from being a religious man who preached wrath to a man moved and broken by the grace and the kindness of God. And when he stood to preach, he consoled, comfort, he called the people under the gracious covenant with God according to the blood of Jesus. Now, this morning, as we turn to the gospel of Mark again, we're going to find Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners. And the Pharisees are going to be highly offended that Jesus would ever sit at a table. Sitting at a table with someone was a sign of fellowship. I mean, it still is today. It's like seeing someone out to dinner with someone. You assume there's a friendship, there's a fellowship, there's a camaraderie. Jesus is having camaraderie with, with, with sinners, with tax collectors. And the religious, like Daniel Rowland, are going to stand in the back and look and condemn All the while, they know nothing of God's gracious love, nothing of God's mercy, nothing of God's standard, which says that they too are totally in need of grace. And so this morning, as we read this text, I'm going to challenge us. I want to call us to remember that there's not a saint in this room who stands before God on the basis of their own merit. You desperately need the blood of Jesus. Desperately. Let's read the text, and I'm going to do my best to unpack some things for you this morning. Is that okay? Mark chapter 2, start in verse 13. He being Jesus, he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." Those who are well have no need of a physician. Physicians come for the sick. First, we're told that Jesus went out again by the sea and he was teaching. Now remember, so far in Mark's gospel, we've learned that Jesus has called four disciples, two sets of brothers, all four of these, um, Peter and Andrew, James and John, they're all fishermen. So kind of, uh, for the most part, lower class tradesmen, work hard. You know how fishermen smell. Um, and so, but, but people for the most part, aren't so offended by a kind of blue collar man walking with Jesus. But today we learn that Jesus is teaching by the water again. Now we said before that he's made his home base kind of in Capernaum and he's kind of ministering out the house of Peter. We read last week that it was in Capernaum that they brought a paralytic and lowered him down to the ceiling. Most scholars believe he was at Peter's house at this point. And Peter probably wasn't too excited about his roof being torn up. 
and, and so Capernaum is kind of by the sea. He's kind of, he kind of has his home base. He's ministering. And so today we read, he's out by the sea again. And, and he passes by a, a tax booth. And there's a man named Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting there. Now there's common consensus. No one really argues about this fact that Levi here is Matthew, the disciple, the gospel writer of Matthew. He's called Matthew Levi. Um, and so there's not really much argument. We're talking about Matthew, one of the apostles. And Matthew is sitting um, by the sea collecting taxes. Now, we can kind of pass by these details and miss it, but it's very clear fishermen work by the sea. That makes sense to us, right? And of course, they were by the water when Jesus called them. But why is the tax collector sitting by the sea? Well, there must have been some kind of port there, and they were taxing goods as they came and went. And so he's, he's sitting by the water, kind of taxing as people are, are participating in commerce and um, Jesus walks by after preaching. At this point, we know Jesus has cast out demons. Jesus has healed a paralytic. Jesus has performed many signs and wonders. And so Matthew, is he's heard of Jesus at this point. And Jesus walks by and he says, follow me. The same thing that he said to, to Peter and to Andrew and to James and John, follow me. The implication of that call, follow me, demands that Matthew leave his vocation. That's pretty much set in stone at this point. The call, follow me, is not a part-time gig. And every believer, hear me say this, you've got to hear the call of Jesus at some point over your life where he says, follow me. And there must be a yes in your heart that says, full-time, 24-7, I will belong to you. I want to be marked by you. I want to serve you. I want to participate in your vision, in your mission, in your plans, in your work. I want to be yours. We've got too many in the West who call themselves Christians who have never responded to the call of Jesus when he says, follow me. The scripture says Matthew rose and followed him. He stood up and left his tax booth, his vocation, his identity, and he begins to follow after a, a rabbi that's at this point becoming well known, but they're still very suspicious about what this man really is up to. Now, the text says that Jesus reclined at his table. There's some controversy about whose table he's sitting at, who is his, but Luke defines for us and tells us that he's at Matthew's house. And so he's reclining at Matthew's house, and many tax collectors and sinners were gathered there. Now, Mark feels no need to explain to you the social stigma of tax collectors and sinners. It's well known to the first century reader, and so we'll have to do some due diligence to understand why is it that tax collecting is such an awful sin? We need to remember that in this period of time, Israel is currently under Roman rule. Around 60 BC, the, the Hasidim, the religious... So if you, if you, if you remember, sorry, I'm, I don't mean to go too far into history here. If you remember around 160 BC, Antiochus uh, Epiphanes, he kind of desecrated the temple. He set up an altar to Zeus and... And the Maccabees, they revolted against um, the Greek rule over Israel and actually overthrew the Seleucids, who were this section left over of Alexander the Great's rulership. And for a season, Israel had kind of independence. But it was like 60 BC that, they, that Rome came and they kind of willingly submitted to Rome. Rome promised peace and prosperity, just kind of submit to us and and things will be okay. And, and the Jewish leadership did. They made a partnership with Rome. 
And what Rome did was they put in place ethnically Jewish people to kind of govern and rule the territory. So when Jesus is born, he's born under a man named Herod the Great. Herod the Great is ethnically Jewish. I was talking to our our youth this week, um, teaching some of our youth, and I was telling them that um, at this point, Augustus Caesar, who's the Caesar of of all of Rome, he says about Herod the Great, who's the, the ethnically Jewish man ruling over Israel, he says, it's better to be Herod's pig than to be Herod's son. Because Herod had murdered multiple of his sons and his wife because he, he didn't want anyone to make a claim at his power. So he's murdering his children, but he won't touch pork. So the Gentiles say, I'd rather be his pig than his son. When Jesus is born, he's born under Herod the Great. And do you remember what Herod does when he, when he hears that there may be a Messiah born in Bethlehem? He says, murder all the little boys. Murder them all. Why is he saying that? Now, we're talking about an ethnically Jewish man leading Israel. Why is he saying murder all the Jewish boys? Because he doesn't want anyone to take claim in his throne. We know from history at this point, um, Herod and his family, they owned, some scholars say, up to 50% of the land. They were just wildly wealthy. These kind of, they were, they were religious elite. They were connected to the high priests, and they were, they were partnering with Rome and oppressing. So now, to tax collect... Is, is not, it's not the IRS. Um, a tax collector, Matthew is a Jewish man, making his living, taking money from, from very, very poor Jewish people. Now, we know, again, from history, that over 90% of Jews in this point are just kind of dirt poor. There's a, there's a small upper class, huge lower class, virtually no middle class. And so almost everybody is dirt poor, and we have these individuals in our community who we grew up with, we know them, we know their mothers and their fathers, and they don't want to fish, they don't want to be carpenters, they don't want to work with their hands. What they're going to do is they're going to sit at a booth and work for Herod's family. And what we know again is that at this point, there's not really, to some extent, there's not really a what we would call like a tax code. Okay, so taxation was left to the discretion of the taxer. And the taxer he decided how much you were going to be taxed, and then he made his living off of what he took off the top. And so the tax collector is someone you grew up with. He could fish like anybody else. He can lay stones like anybody else, but rather he's going to sit at a booth and work for those who betrayed us. He's going to fund Roman oppression on God's people, and you're taking money out of my kid's mouth, off my kid's table, because you're too lazy to get up and work. And what you're, what you're actually doing is rather than hoping in messianic deliverance, the hope of Israel, right, is that a son of David would rise up and overthrow all oppression and establish Israel as an independent nation. And we're supposed to hope for David's root, the son, the root of Jesse to rise up. And rather than that, the tax collectors, you're stealing our money to fund our military oppressors. Betrayal. Utter betrayal. Now, at this point of history, Herod the Great's already gone. But the man in power is Herod Antipas, um, who was Herod's son. And Herod Antipas is the man who, he wanted to marry his brother's wife. And so he does so. And again, they're ethnically Jewish. So John the Baptist stands up and says, you cannot marry your brother's wife. 
It's against the law. And so what Herod does is he has John the Baptist arrested. And just a little while, they'll have John the Baptist's head cut off for daring to oppose the workings of the Herodians. So who is Matthew collecting taxes for? He's collecting taxes for Herod and Tippus, the, the man who's going to murder John the Baptist in just a few short chapters. So, so Matthew is he betraying his own people. He's participating in the oppression of his own people. He's abandoning Jewish hope and girding up Roman oppression. Now, Jesus should not be sitting with these kinds of people. They're thieves. They're traitors. They're wicked. Sick, even. And the term sinners is implored to classify these people because they're, they're ceremonially unclean. They don't follow law. And now Jesus is sitting at the table. So the Pharisees say, why does this man eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, forgive me here for being a little bit too transparent. And I don't need you to interpret my dreams or give me some Freudian explanation of my own thoughts. Um, I could do that for myself, trust me. I don't know, for a couple, at least a year, maybe longer, probably once or twice a month, I have this recurring dream. And this recurring dream... um, Something happens. I'm from Pensacola, Florida. Something happens in Pensacola where I'm from, and it's like a parent's sick, or I need to leave to go deal with an issue. And so I go to Pensacola, and I get stuck there. And in this recurring dream, I'm stuck, like, caring for a family member and stuck there long enough that the church here needs to hire a new pastor for Hilton Head and Bluffton. And, and now I'm stuck in Pensacola where I was raised. And at some point in the dream, someone asked me to pastor there, asked me to pastor, like, the Methodist church I grew up in or pastor some other congregation. And in the dream, I am horrified because I don't want to pastor people who knew me before God really caught hold of my life. Now, you're not supposed to laugh at that. Because, because in the dream, I'm very aware that I'm somebody's tax collector. Do you hear what I'm saying? I'm, I'm, I, mean, I don't have this view of myself that I've been holy and righteous my entire life, and, and I'm God's great blessing. God's blessed to have me. No, like, I know that there are some people that I wronged. I know that there are some people who could look at God and say, why use him? And, of course, I need to work through my own shame or some point. I don't know. It must be stuck in the back of my brain somewhere. Um, but you are, too. And you could pretend like you've got it all together. And you could pretend like you've been righteous for the entirety of your life. And all of your dealings are just. And you've never wronged anyone. You've never raised your voice. You've always been perfect in all your dealings. But you and I know that ain't true. And you're somebody's tax collector. And somebody at some point stands and looks at God and says, why them? The way that they've spit on me. The way that they've chewed up and spit me out. Why would you use them? And Jesus responds with a kind of proverb. Um, this is actually a proverb that we see in history. We see Roman leaders using this in other places. But the proverb is that the, that the doctor, the physician, he doesn't come for the healthy, he comes for the sick. In other words, we can get into what Jesus is really saying here. He's, he's not saying that the Pharisees are righteous and have no need of grace. If you remember in Matthew chapter 23, we studied what, what's called the seven woes, where Jesus said about the Pharisees that they're whitewashed tombs, 
Jesus said about the Pharisees that they travel hundreds of miles to make a single proselyte and they make them twice as much a child of hell as they are. Jesus said they're guilty of murdering the prophets. So what does Jesus say about the religious elite? One, they're hypocrites, they're fakes. Two, they're children of hell. Three, they murder God's true messengers. So Jesus is not saying to the Pharisees, you don't really need me. But he is saying, you don't think you need me. You don't think that you have need of a physician. Those that I come to heal, those that I come to minister to, restore, they'll have to confess their need for a physician. And Jesus is going to make this point for the entirety of his ministry. Sometimes it's easier for the prostitute to acknowledge she needs me than the the person born in the pews. So they'll say to Jesus, why them? Why would you sit with them? Why would you dine with them? Why would you have relationship with them? And Jesus' response back is kind of this. Don't you realize that I just took the man from the tax booth and he quit his job? You've been oppressed by a tax collector for years and, and I just fired him. And you're so frustrated about someone getting healed, a betrayer turning back to the call of the Lord. You're so frustrated that I heal, that I deliver, that I see someone's brokenness. I step into the situation and I bring them out and I make them new. You're bitter, man. Wouldn't, shouldn't you celebrate that Matthew's now left that vocation to follow a rabbi? Shouldn't you celebrate? But you're too bitter in your own hearts to see what I'm doing. Now, again, he comes for the sick. The idea is you can be riddled with cancer and still have no idea. Or or you can be so stubborn that you resist medical attention because you don't want anything to do with a physician. Jesus tells a parable in Luke 18 where a Pharisee stands in the temple. And do you remember there's a tax collector standing far off? The Pharisee stands in the front of the temple, kind of bolstered up, and he says, God, I thank you that I am not like this tax collector. I tithe, I trust, I I give of all my money. And in the parable, Jesus says the tax collector, he stands far off with his head hung low because he's ashamed of what he's done. And he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, do you know the tax collector left that place justified? And the Pharisee left condemned. God is a God who gives grace to all who will acknowledge their need for it. There's no room in Christianity for people who think that they are better than needing grace. If you don't freely confess your own sin and guilt and wickedness outside of Jesus' cross and crucifixion, you're not a Christian. Christianity is about blood-bought people, born again, new. And you've got to be willing to look at your old life and say, that was wrong. And so look at the cross and say, Thank you, Jesus, I needed that. And, and listen to me. You've got to be willing to look at your betrayer and, and, and not curse them, but to say there's forgiveness in the cross. Now, I don't know why I feel the need to be personal today, but here we go. Um, I, I think we all have these kind of experiences. I was, I was just a little guy, two or three, when my biological father, who had his own demons and his own issues, he left, and maybe I saw him once 
or twice in my childhood, but I never had a relationship with him. He didn't like call on our birthdays or send cards or give us anything for Christmas. I mean, I just never saw him. And as a toddler and as I got, you know, five, six, you kind of um, romanticize your, your, your parent that you don't know. There's a mystery about it. Do you, do you know what I mean? I, I think I knew at like three or four that my dad drove a truck, so it must be the biggest truck, you know? Um, but as you start to age and mature, you're kind of romanticizing the mystery of the parent you don't know turns into bitterness. And, and as, I'm, as I'm 12 and 13, I think if I ever see him, I'm going to lay him on his back. And, you know, um, probably wouldn't have happened. Uh, my noodle arms aren't very effective in what you call taekwondo. Um, but I was going to try. Okay, I was going to try. And so as I, you know, in my teenage years, I'm mad. I'm frustrated. I'm bitter. I don't want anything to do with him. Well, God gets a hold of my life. And 18 or 19, and about that time, I, I kind of, long story short, my, my biological father kind of stepped back in my life. I knew him. I had a relationship with him. And there was a day where I was standing outside, and uh, he was smoking a cigarette. And, and I walked over, and he said, I, I know what I did was wrong. And my whole life I had practiced, like, you know, the people's elbow that I was supposed to give. Um, I watched a lot of WWE, the Stone Cold Stunner. I was ready for it. Um, <laughs> But in the moment, I knew that God called me to forgive. I didn't necessarily want to forgive. I knew that God said that I had to forgive, that I was betrayed by someone, and, and, and I'm not justifying his actions. Like, my kids know their dad. I promise you that. Probably get on their nerves, but they're going to know their dad. So I'm not justifying his actions, but I'm saying that there was a place where I had to go out of obedience to the Father and obedience to, to what Jesus did for me. I had to go, it's, it's, it's under the blood. You're forgiven. And what starts, what starts as obedience to God and having to bless those who curse you, when you do it for long enough, all of a sudden you, you move from the place of obedience to the place where your heart really loves even those who spit on you. And that's the beauty of gospel transformation. You leave the place of, I'm just being obedient to forgive, to the place of where my dad died of cancer just a few years ago. My daughter prayed for him daily, and we, we, we blessed him, and we wanted him to, to have full you know, knowledge of Jesus. And we, we really prayed. And, and God did something in my heart where it moved from obedience to desire because the gospel requires of me that I acknowledge that I too am a betrayer and that I have to forgive those who have spit on me and bless and cry out. And where the imagery really goes of the text at least in my opinion, and some commentators agree and some don't necessarily go there, but I I think this is what's happening. Jesus is sitting at a table sharing dinner with people who are wicked. People who just hours ago were total sinners. And the imagery here, I think, I think that if the reader reads carefully and meditates long enough, you begin to think about the last great banquet. After the coming of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead, where, where the saints of old, of every generation, will feast with Jesus. Jesus says, I won't drink of the cup again until, my, until the resurrection, after the resurrection. When we sit at the table with the Lord, you know the day we long for, we sing about. When we sit at that table and, and all things have been made right, you will sit across from some people who spit on you. And when when I sit at the table of the Lord, there will be some who would say, I but the confession for everyone will be the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus healed us of 
our iniquities. Jesus says this in Matthew 21, verse 28 through 31. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first, and he said, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterwards, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son, and he said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they go into the kingdom before you. Jesus says there will be prostitutes who enter the feast of the Lord before Pharisees and scribes. And that imagery just kind of keeps unraveling throughout the New Testament. The master, he has a great banquet and he says, go invite the neighbors. But all of the neighbors say, oh, I just bought a field and I'm busy with my ox and I can't come to your banquet. And so the master says, just go invite the, the poor man, whoever will come, let him come. And this is a precursor, it's imagery of the table of the Lord in the last day. Now imagine the Pharisees saying, the man who robbed us, Jesus, you're going to make an apostle? And Jesus says, exactly. That's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to restore those who are bound in sin, who have betrayed. I'm going to restore the wrongdoer, and I'm going to flip it on their head. They're going to be a new creation in me, They will serve me, bless me, carry this gospel for the four corners of the earth. And the testimony will be to the nations. Your wickedness, your failures, and your shortcomings, they do not keep you out of the kingdom. There is so much power in the blood. And as many who will come will have newness of life. So Matthew gets up from tax collecting, gets up from serving Rome. And he begins to follow the beautiful Messiah prophesied of old. And we learn from Jesus that all who call on his mercy, every prostitute, every alcoholic, every thief, every adulterer, those who've been child abusers, those who have who've wronged in many different ways, those people who are just bound up with bitterness. Some of you have just been angry your whole life. You're just angry at me. You're welcome at the table of the Lord. Confess your need for forgiveness, and it will be lavished upon you graciously. And we are a mercy-bought people. We're a grace-bought people. We have died to the old life. We've been born again to a new life. And our job is to invite any who will come. And you've got to get over yourself, get over your offenses. Some of you have been wronged. Some of you have a, a husband who cheated and walked out. And you're still bitter and mad. You gotta, you've got to release. You've got to begin to pray. I, I can remember in seasons where I had real bitterness with people. I would say, God, I pray that you catch hold of their heart, that they love you more than I love you, that they serve you even more faithfully than I want to serve you. I pray you'd use them all the days of their life. Anoint them with the Holy Spirit. And we have to come to a place where we're praying that way for those who have cursed us. And in that kind of prayer, heaven just breaks open and busts loose. Because our God is the God who loves those who spit in his face. And the nails in his hands are because of you. And your guilt held him there. And you shouted with the rest, crucify him. And Jesus said, I love you anyway. I love you anyway. 
Daniel Rowland preached judgment. And, 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 and judgment is certainly a biblical truth. Hell is long and hot. You don't want to be there, I promise you. It's not as if doctrine, he left the doctrine of hell. That's silly. It's not as if, hear me again, it's not as if what Jesus is saying to the tax collectors is, you know what, I'm just going to excuse your sin. Just keep doing it, it's all good. You know, that's what culture wants us to say to every kind of sexual perversion. Or, you know, we're just going to excuse it and look over it, it's okay. It's not what Jesus says. Jesus is saying, you're going to stop that. And we're going to do something different. So he's not excusing sin. He's not patting anything on the back. But the offer is newness, an opportunity to do something different. So Daniel Rowland is no longer the preacher, the angry clergyman, but he becomes the, the, the preacher of consolation, calling people to look to the cross, to trust in the blood, to have newness of life in Jesus. And that is the core of this gospel message that you have got to get. And if we don't have that, we might as well just pack it up and go home because we're nothing more than Pharisees. You're somebody's betrayer, and you've got people who betrayed you. The only option in this gospel is forgiveness according to the cross of Jesus. Worship team, if you come for me. Pastor Brad's going to come and and lead us to the Lord's table today, and we're going to remember again that that it's grace. It's this broken body. Jesus says of of the bread, this is true food, broken body, and the shed blood of the lamb that invites us to newness of life. Pastor Brad, why don't you go ahead and come? I can't think of a better way to respond to the word today than to take communion as a family this morning. Um, I'm reminded, like David, search my heart, O Lord. See if there be any wicked or anxious way in me. Communion's always an opportunity.